Hey, Colleen. Hey, Hannah. So this is between a rock and a hard place, although it kind of looks like a storage closet. But seriously, we're here to talk about life in Iraq. Right. All right, we spent the last two episodes talking about culture shock. And so this week we're going to talk about coming back to your home culture yeah. after having lived and adapted to a foreign culture. And that has a couple different names. We're going to start out by calling it re-entry, and then we'll get into some of the reverse culture shock. Because much like culture shock, there is a difference between like coming back to your home culture. We're just going to refer to it as America, because that's our home culture. Does that seem fair? Yeah, I think that works. Otherwise, we'll get confused. It's true. Um, coming back to the U.S. for a short time, mm-hmm. um, like we usually would come back for the summer, versus coming back to live and like establish a life. Right. So we're going to kind of split it up between those two. Hopefully we can do it all in one episode. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. So the first part of it is the things that happen when you first come back. And a lot of these things are things that you would expect. Things like jet lag. Right. And the excitement of seeing your friends and family and people after you've been gone for a while. Mm. It has some shared aspects with the honeymoon phase of what we talked about before. Right. And jet lag, in my experience, coming back, jet lag has always been worse. And I don't know if that's because I'm allowed to be exhausted where going, I always felt like I don't have time to, like, have a day off. Mm-hmm. I have to get back to, like, my job. Mm-hmm. Or if it really was worse for me coming back. I don't know. Or, yeah, if it's the direction of the time change, right. whether it's the hours later or the hours earlier or what it is. Yeah. Day three for me was always, like, the worst. It's the one where you wake up in early morning and you can't get back to sleep, even though you're so tired. Mm-hmm. And... And you get kind of grumpy with everyone because you're really tired. you're just so tired. I had to start telling my mom. My mom would schedule things for day three. Be like, oh, you need your first couple days home to rest. And then, you know, day three, we'll invite people over and have a party. And I started (laughs) telling her, mom, have a party, like, the day after I get back. Let me have day three. (laughs) Like, that day is going to really, really suck. (laughs) So let me just have that day. And we figured it out. I mean, you gotta learn. You learn, because I think it's a little different for everyone. Sure. And they say, you know, jet lag is one day for every hour of time difference. I don't know if that's necessarily true. Yeah, it didn't take me 11 days when I was at an 11-hour time difference. Right. I usually felt like by day five at the latest, I was feeling pretty normal. And that's about when you get sick. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And that's not, I mean, probably it's from being on airplanes and in airports with people for yeah 24 hours. And exposed to a lot of international germs that your body has not been exposed to before. Yeah. And it's usually not too bad. Like, it's usually just a cold or something. Right. Sometimes it's also because your body is like, you have put me through too much. Time to sleep now. It's like God's way of enforcing your rest. It's true. And I think one of the most dangerous things for me coming back to the U.S. was like, Like, you were talking about all the excitement and people want to visit you. Most of the time, and maybe this is because I'm from the South, I'm not sure, but when people are like, hey, let's do something, it's like, do you want to have lunch? Do you want to go out to dinner? Do you want to get coffee? Do you want to get breakfast? Let's go get ice cream. And it's like, 
My body has not had an abundance of dairy, no pork, and very little beef. And suddenly you're like, steak, pork chops, ice cream, cheeseburgers, french fries, and... Everything! Everything. And you want to eat it because you're like, I haven't had this in so long, and I'm only home for six weeks, and I gotta get it all in while I can. And then you feel terrible. (laughs) Yeah, your stomach goes on revolt, and just be careful of your body. Yeah. It can't actually handle that much change, even though your taste buds really want it to. Yes. I think along with that, you talk about how you have all those meetings and all of those people, and it was very easy for me when I came back to the U.S. for a visit to fill up my days with social events to the point where I had, you know, breakfast, lunch, coffee and dinner all out with different people Mm. and that is not a sustainable way to live no even for a few days for sure no so I always had to remember especially the last couple days before I left to not plan those days full because that's when everyone starts freaking out that you're leaving and Mm -hmm. wants to spend time with you and I had to choose not to schedule those days full. Maybe a breakfast or a coffee. Right. And that was it. I needed space to pack, to figure out what I needed to bring, what I needed to go shopping for, spend time with my family, mm-hmm. you know, those things. Yeah, but you're right. The last two days that you're in the U.S., people are like, oh, you're leaving! I gotta hang out with you before you go. And there is that kind of urgency even when you get back that you feel like, I have a limited amount of time. I want to see everyone that I can possibly see. Mm -hmm. I know my first summer home, I definitely struggled with that. Oh, yeah. I spent so much time with so many people. And Mm -hmm. it was good. It really was good. But I was absolutely beat. Yeah. And, like, for me... The people who want to see me are spread all over the East Coast. And so mm-hmm. family in Florida would be like, hey, are you coming down to Florida to see us? And I'd be like, I feel like I really should, because when am I going to get to see you? Okay, I bought a plane ticket. And it's like, I spent two weeks in Florida and two weeks at home and two weeks in D.C. and two weeks. And it was just like, I can't do this. Which is a big part of even if you're home for a short break, a few mm-hmm. weeks, you need to make sure that you get enough rest. Right. Otherwise, that minor sickness will not be a minor sickness, Mm -hmm. and you won't be able to return to your foreign culture with any energy whatsoever. Yeah, and again, for me, that actually meant not staying with my parents, because Hmm. summer is like the busiest time for them, and there are tons of people. My parents live at a camp, and so there are tons of people at the camp all the time yeah and there's always kind of this feeling of I have I should help I should go visit I should like be involved so one year I rented um a hotel room on the beach because I was already going to Florida for a wedding and rented like four days on the beach by myself I didn't tell anyone like it was near where some of my family lived I didn't tell anyone I was gonna be there oh And I just, like, chilled at the beach by myself for four days. And it was amazing. And by the end of it, I was like, I'm so tired of my own company. Let me be with people. Yeah, and that's good. I think I started to build in a day often in in between. As I was traveling from the Middle East to the U.S. or back Mm -hmm. to build myself a day or two of buffer 
in that travel plan so that I could arrive in both places with a little bit of rest and a little bit of clarity of mind. Yeah, it does. It does make a big difference. But yeah, definitely get rest even on the short term. Even on the short term. But when it gets to be a little bit longer, when you're not just visiting... Right, when you gotta come back to America and be a real grown adult human being. And live. And live. And make a life. Have a job and pay rent and buy a car and all that stuff. It's a it's a different animal in it a lot is. of ways. And has a lot of challenges that I think a lot of people don't expect. We all expect when we go to a foreign country for it to feel different and there to be a shock and there to be you know, challenges and struggles that are different from what we experience here in the U.S. Right. But when we come back, we come in with this expectation that, oh, this is our home culture. We know this. We can do this. This is our world. Except it's not. Yeah, I think, and I, I think we'll talk some more about expectations, um, that I think that can be really, I think the hardest thing for me was coming back, having come back for short term and kind of having that mindset that I'm still short term, even though like I knew like I got to buy a car and I'm, I was moving, like I went home mm-hmm. and stayed with my parents, but then, you know, I was moving here to Nashville, which means like I got to figure out like rent and all these other like how am I going to get all my stuff from here to there and but there was still kind of that mindset of like I'm only here for a short while like it was kind of a weird transition time Mm -hmm. and I think one of the one of the things that is hard is that like you want to share that experience with the people in your life yeah you've learned and seen and grown and changed Right, and you see, like, in your own culture, things that are different, and you want to be like, well, but, you know, in Iraq, blah, 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 blah. And (laughs) Americans do not care. They don't want to know. They don't, I don't want to overgeneralize, but I'm gonna, so deal. Americans tend to be the least interested in other cultures of, of most other international people I've interacted with. Granted. I've usually interacted with those people outside of their own culture, so they were probably already interested in multiple cultures. But But even the people who love you and know you the best and who care deeply about you only have a certain amount of bandwidth for these foreign experiences that your words can only partially convey. Yeah, and I definitely have friends that love and care about me deeply and ask me those things and are interested in those things but they're the exception rather Mm -hmm. than the rule like for the most part people can't understand and so they don't want to listen to it that's just one of the many expectations Mm -hmm. that you have to manage and as you enter into your home culture from your other home culture. Right. So as we came back to the U.S. from Iraq, we had to realize that our home culture had changed. We had changed as people. Right. And that now we needed to adapt to a new culture. Right. And that, I think, was an easy thing for me to think about. Partly because I looked at and kind of studied the concept of reentry. Sure. Um, But also because I was moving to Nashville from the Northwest, Mm. out in Idaho, where there's already a big cultural difference. Right. And so when I came here to Nashville, I very much looked at it like I am moving to a new culture Mm. that I needed 
to adapt to, that I need to figure out and study and learn the same way I learned to live in Iraq. I didn't get that quite as much um, (laughs) because I am from the South and was moving just to a bigger city in the South. But I I do think that um, there was a little bit of an adaptation and adjustment of expectations um, about even what my life would be like in Nashville. Um, Mm. I think I did struggle more with being frustrated by certain things because I felt like I should know and I should have it together. But I I also wasn't able to like do the I'm I'm moving into a new culture thing. Right. It was more I am moving to a new city, but the culture is going to be the culture I grew up in. And there are enough similarities between southern <gasps> culture and Kurdish culture that wasn't too big of a deal, but there were definitely times where I was like this is not normal. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think the part of it that both of us still end up struggling with too is that while we may realize that we're learning or readapting to American culture, because we don't look different or right. sound that different from the people around us, other people's expectations is for us to know the cultural rules and to mm-hmm. play by those rules. Right. Even though, especially for me, and have the foggiest idea how to navigate some of the hospitality rules or some of the linguistic rules or what was polite and what was not polite. I have never learned to ma'am or sir a single person in my whole life. And now there are these rules about like words I'm supposed to say in certain contexts and I still can't really figure it out. I think um, for me one of the biggest adjustments and I still find myself adjusting to it I ran into it today, actually, is the way that you interact with people you don't know mm. in America is very mm-hmm. different than the way you interact with people you don't know in the Middle East, especially male and female. Yes. I remember one of the first things I did after moving to Nashville was to go to Publix. And if you don't know about Publix, Publix is like the friendliest grocery store ever. <laughs> it's wonderful, and I love it. I was not prepared for the friendliness because I went with uh, another friend who had been living in the Middle East and we were like, I don't know, buying sushi or groceries or something. And we were like checking out and the guy bagging our groceries was like, so what are you guys' plans for this weekend? Are you going to watch the football game? What are you going to do about this? How long, like, where are you going? Oh, do you like sushi? Do you think sushi is good? What's your favorite kind of sushi? And we were both kind of like, why are you talking to us? Like... You're not supposed to be talking. Like, is he flirting with us? Like, this is not okay. He's and, a man. Like, You're I remember us going out from there and sitting down to eat whatever we had bought and being like, that was weird, right? Like, that was weird for you, too, right? This is not just me being like, that's not normal. And now, having been back for almost four years, I'm like, okay, I can have, like, the little nonsensical unmeaningful conversations usually (laughs) today I got surprised by one and I just kind of like I I don't know what to say (laughs) but yeah things like that that are like Mm -hmm. you feel like an awkward teenager because it's kind of an awkward teenager thing to be like I don't know how to socially interact with you yeah I've actually had situations where I was with other men in a meeting people I know and trust and care about and they've actually called me out on the are you understanding me like 
you're not really looking at me and you're not really responding in the way I would expect. And I'm sitting here going, oh, right. Eye contact with men is a sign of respect and understanding here, not a sign of being overly flirtatious. Like, remember to make eye contact with people. And it takes the same amount of energy to focus and create or recreate that habit as it took to Um, remove it before when we lived in Iraq. And you have the feeling that you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Like, there's, there's still that moral element of, like, I'm going to look at you in the eye, but I'm going to feel bad about it the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Like, sit there and go, I hope he doesn't think I'm flirting. Yeah. I hope he doesn't think I'm flirting. Are you wondering what to do with your life? We've got some ideas. Come check them out at www.servantgroup.org slash Iraq. It can also be weird to feel like um, no one notices you. And this feels like a really, like, self-absorbed sort of thing to say. But when you are the white, blonde woman in your city, everyone notices you. Everyone knows who you are. And knows who you are and wants to, like, approach and talk to you. Where when you're here and you are definitely not the only blonde, white woman in a huge city, people don't pay attention. Mm Mm-hmm. And that can be a hard adjustment. Not out of, like, I need attention so much as, like, I feel like something could happen to me and no one would notice or care. Right. Um, You don't feel the same sense of, like, the overwatching care that we experienced there where everyone was always looking out for us. Mm -hmm. It's kind of weird, too. I almost feel like it made me hypervigilant for a while because it was like, no one else is watching out for me. I gotta watch out for myself. No one else is gonna care if I disappear into the darkness, which is not true, but it feels like that. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't have a sense of that feeling of, like, safety or security or just that change affects how you behave in public. Mm-hmm. It affects how you see or interact with other people, whether you feel more friendly towards them or whether you feel like they're suspicious of you or ignoring you. Or right. It changes a lot of things. Yeah, I didn't think about it until we were uh, reading up on this for this podcast, but that is a sense of loss of community in mm-hmm. some ways, which I think is the biggest and hardest struggle for most people coming back to the U.S. is you're leaving this life that you have built for yourself with these friends and these people, be it teammates or fellow teachers or students or neighbors, and you're coming to a place where you should have community and you don't. You don't have that community anymore. And especially since the communities we often build as a foreigner in another country are often much more tight-knit, close, and intense because Mm -hmm. of the unusualness of the environment or why you're there or what you have in common. Yeah. I will say, uh, I feel like this got cushioned for me a lot by moving to Nashville and moving in with you, who we had shared experience, Mm -hmm. and having the community of servant group who have that shared experience. Um, For me, the struggle was more being plugged into my church Mm-hmm. than like having a friend group because I, I I feel like I had that already built for me which was amazing yeah even even getting back into a church can be really difficult it can be a struggle mm-hmm. um, partly because <laughs> you get frustrated with 
American things. Yeah, a lot of things, once you're away from them, you get a better perspective or a different perspective on them, and you can see both the pros and cons of cultural items or practices differently than you used to. I think one thing a lot of people struggle with is Americans having a lot of stuff. We really do have a ton of stuff. I mean, not just us personally. I mean, we do too, but (laughs) in general, Americans have a ton more stuff than anyone in other countries. I think both of us got overwhelmed by uh, having to choose things. Uh, I can think about when I bought my car, for example. Mm -hmm. I used a car buying service, which was super helpful because it narrowed it down from being like, you could buy any car in America to like, you can buy these cars from these dealers, which was still like 20 dealers and 15 different cars per dealer. And feeling overwhelmed by, I have to choose this. How do I know, like, how do I know I'm not paying too much money? How do I know I'm getting the right kind of car? How do I know it's a good car? How do I know that, like, I'm not being swindled out of this deal? My parents helped me with that. I also had never bought a car before. (laughs) And my parents definitely helped me with that. And I have no remorse over my choice. But I remember being just, like, completely overwhelmed with, I'm going to screw this up. And this is, like, thousands of dollars that I am dealing with. Do I I even need a car? (laughs) I don't need a car. It's too much work, man. It's funny, though, that your example is with something that's so big. I feel like I felt those same feelings for very small purchases. Mm -hmm. I remember walking into Walmart and going down the aisle for laundry detergent. Like, this is a normal household expense that is not a big deal. Right. And will not drastically change your life if you maybe pick one that is not the best or is something different, whatever. But, like, in Iraq, I knew which laundry detergent I wanted. Which one was the best one for the money? Out of the, like, three Out of the three choices. But here we've got an entire aisle of laundry detergent. Right, and it's not just detergent, either. It's like, do you want powder detergent or liquid detergent? Do you want fabric softener? Do you want dryer sheets? Do you want, like, pre-wash? Do you want stain remover? Do you want the little gel packs? I had, I think, half a cart of stuff full. And as I started looking at the things in that aisle, I got so overwhelmed that I burst into tears, left my cart in the aisle. I apologized to those workers in that grocery store and left. I just, I just, I couldn't take it anymore. Mm -hmm. And I still, to this day, almost never will walk down the laundry (laughs) detergent aisle. Yes. I either buy my laundry detergent online Mm-hmm. Or I make my roommates buy it, like you did last time. Yes. And it's been almost eight years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I feel you. I had a similar experience at IHOP, um, you know. And pancakes and, are so important. Right, and it seems like it should be an easy decision, but IHOP's menu is massive. And it was just like, I just want pancakes. But do I want blueberry pancakes or walnut pancakes or pumpkin pancakes? Do I want the special magical pancakes? What do I want on top of my pancakes? What kind of side do I want with my pancakes? 
And yeah, it was an IHOP with my dad. And I am pretty sure I cried and excused myself and went to the bathroom and was just like, I can't decide, please order for me. And my dad ordered for me like I was two years old. And I remember feeling, I remember saying in this IHOP, I hate America. <laughs> and everyone like turning and looking at me. Because you know, it's all like real American Americans in an IHOP. Yeah. And the international thing, not true. Full of Americans. And yeah, I remember this lady turning around and looking at me like, what is wrong with you? And, and you feel that. You feel that sense of there is something wrong with me. Right. Like, I'm making a big dramatic deal out of this thing. I'm not a big dramatic person. And I know that this is a little thing. Yep. But I have all the feelings. Yeah. It was and rough. I haven't gone decision back to... Decision fatigue. Right. I haven't gone back to IHOP since then. But yeah, I, I think we experience that even without the cross-cultural thing. You come to a point where you're like, I don't want to make any more decisions. Mm -hmm. But if you've lived the life without all of those options and without all of that wealth of choice, mm -hmm. you get used to the ease that comes with it. Right. And you just yeah. want to go shop at Trader Joe's yeah. where there's only one of each thing. Right. Right. And you know what's good because it's Trader Joe's. <laughs> um, yeah, this is not sponsored by Trader Joe's. <laughs> Although, you know, Trader Joe's, you want to shoot us a like gift card? <laughs> Would take it. There are some really fascinating studies, psychological studies, about decision fatigue, actually. It's really interesting how Americans can burn themselves out. And, like, how soon we start learning to make decisions is too soon. Anyway, that's a bunny trail that we don't have time for. <laughs> the other major American signifier that I think is, the is a challenge for us is the pace of life. Mm-hmm. America has a reputation for being very fast-paced, and it's really true compared to at least Iraq, and I know many other cultures as well. And we have really worked, I know, to keep some of that slower pace of life mm -hmm. in our world so that we can be flexible and can work with the Middle Easterners that we continue to be friends with here in Nashville. Yeah, yeah it, it kind of boils down to being task-oriented versus relationship-oriented. It's really easy to fall back into the pattern of oh, being yeah. task-oriented because Americans are achievement-based. And efficiency. Achievement and efficiency, like, what's your five-year plan? And Give like, me your stats and your numbers. Yeah, and that's one thing that I definitely have pushed back against. Not always in a healthy way, but... I definitely have been like, no, I'm not going back to that. Like, <laughs> I've never been a super achiever to begin with, but not going back to having my whole life revolve around my job or accomplishing an educational something or whatever, but really being open with people and wanting to be with people. It's a challenge when a lot of the people we run into, though, live that life of the one event task after another, mm -hmm. where they are running from thing to thing to thing to thing. And if you don't have a good sized chunk of time, then like you can't be friends with people. You can't get to know new people and right. go deep with people unless you actually have time to spend with them. Right. 
we could go into the philosophical implications of like busyness and its effects on your relationships. Um, <laughs> These are all things sure. we've thought about a lot. Right. And I think in part because we've experienced this cultural shift right. in reentry and right. returning to the U.S. Right. And have purposefully, like you said, made choices and structured our life differently because of those things Mm -hmm. when I have you know an Arabic family that I'm friends with and I go over to their house I know there's no way I can pop by for a cup of tea for 45 minutes right if I'm going there it's going to take all evening right or even we invite people over to our house kind of with the expectation of like come and like hang out with us for a while don't just like come and have coffee and then leave or come and eat dinner and then get out the door it's like no like we want you and it like freaks people out that we want them in our house well and i've run into this over and over again you know when we've hosted people sometimes we do host differently right we chat and at some point like usually everyone's kind of quietly sitting around either reading the books that we have out or playing a game that we have out or just just talking talking everyone's always kind of like this is nice but different feel like I'm at home here or like even when we've had big events like servant group events Mm -hmm. usually everyone kind of spreads out and is doing their own thing and we've got Dave in the corner playing music and some other people playing like clap hand games with the kids another kid you know, reading books and other people in conversation. Right. It just, it's very... We don't have an agenda for yeah. the evening. It's all very organic. And very relaxed. And relaxed, yeah. Yeah, so what do you think are some um, cultural cultural shifts that you have seen coming back to the U.S.? Because you came back earlier than I did. Yeah. I think the rise of social media mm. was a big thing that happened a lot while I was gone. Yeah. I mean, I'd gotten Facebook in college, but I hadn't really even explored more than that until after I came back to the U.S. And by the time I came back to the U.S., everybody had social media and it was all connected to everyone. It wasn't just your university. That made the way people interact different and the way Mm -hmm. people communicate different Mm -hmm. and how you connect with people and whether or not you have any clue who you went to college (laughs) with or how you communicate with people over email or messenger or on people's Facebook walls and all that kind of stuff really shifted while I was gone. And to a certain extent, I felt a little bit disconnected from it because while I'd had Facebook, it still wasn't the same cultural feature as it had become here in the U.S. Navigating, now I have to keep up with the funniest meme of the week or the riddle that everybody's sharing or Mm -hmm. whatever it is that everybody's talking about. I've got to keep track of that. Yeah, I think that's one thing that I noticed is that we cycle through trends really quickly. News items as a trend and just like things that are like the humor of the moment or the puzzle of the moment or whatever. We react to things quickly and without thinking about them. 
and then move on to the next thing. It's like the viral culture. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's Everything is, is viral and, and here for a moment and then gone. And that was not what life was like when I left. Things were still, were still a fast-moving culture, but not nearly to the extent that we are now. I think the other thing that I missed was the rise of texting as a form of communication. I mean, I got a smartphone and while I was in Iraq and texted a lot in Iraq, even still was like, I would just rather you call me. Like, text me and say you're going to call me, sure. And I still am very much like, I will have conversations over text, but for the most part, I would rather someone just call me, which makes me feel like an old person because that's like an (laughs) old person thing. But fun, that's kind of funny because I didn't get a smartphone till I came back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so that sense of GPS and always having your directions and your books and your games and all of those things in your pocket was a big adjustment for me. Yeah. Even though I had kids in Iraq who had smartphones, sure. it was just never important. Right. And now, like, I need it for my job. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, there, there's this this kind of technological gap, almost. Yeah, of yeah. Technology has moved forward in ways that, even though you maybe are aware of it, it hadn't necessarily trickled down to you yet. Right. Although, I would say I texted more in Iraq and learned to text there, and have always preferred texting because I really hate talking to people on the phone. But I mean, I've been that way since I was a kid, so yeah. I don't think that has anything to do with technology. Um, there are definitely some alterations in relationships, too. I think I can see that. So my brother has eight kids. My sister has four kids. So dozen small humans who are my nephews and nieces. And my brother had some, my brother and sister both had a couple kids before I left for Iraq. Mm-hmm. And then while I was in Iraq, they both had more kids and have both had kids since I've been back from Iraq. So I kind of have this, like, timeline of children, <laughs> which is weird. Um, but I can tell from the outside, when I pull myself outside of it, um, how my relationships are different with those kids based on, like, where I was living when they were young the variety of closeness that is more than just like personality difference also has to do with like you know my older nieces and nephews knew me when I was around all the time and then they also knew me when I was gone most of the time and then you know now they know me when I'm a little bit there and a little bit not but I have this big chunk in the middle that like they kind of grew up with me not being around Mm -hmm. and they're now eight and nine seven eight nine years old and they're used to only seeing me occasionally that changes the dynamic of my relationship with them because I'm a little bit more of a stranger and then we've got these new these new babies who are like oh yeah she's here sometimes like we see her multiple times a year instead of like in the summer and so again like that's a weird like tangible visual difference in relationship. I feel like maybe most people don't get because they don't have that age range that I have. There are a dozen of them. Like, it's an age range. It's an age range. Yeah, but your your relationships do shift and change. And when you come back to those relationships, whether you're in the same town as you used to be or whether or not you're just in the same country and then can talk by phone easier or things like that, 
those relationships are not going to be exactly the same as they were when you lived there. That can be a hard thing to come to terms with. Mm. And they're not going to be exactly the same as when you lived in the foreign country either. Right. Some of the excitement or curiosity that some of your friends may have had when you lived in a foreign country may go away and they may think of you as like a boring ordinary person. Right. You've got to be okay with being a boring ordinary person. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Coming to grips with the like, I don't have exciting stories to tell you about my life because I got up and I went to work and then I came home and I made dinner and I watched a TV show and I went to bed. My life looks just like yours. Or even if you're excited about the things that you're doing in your life, they don't hold that same foreign curiosity that your life and or our lives in Iraq held. You know, like I could tell a story about going and, you know, going to the bazaar and buying bread and it could be an interesting story. But if I told you the story of going to Kroger and buying bread you would be like, I could do that. Yeah, and I think you start to have an altered idea of what home is. Absolutely. You start to think of that differently and even start to think of America differently because you see the things that are weird about America that if you grow up your whole life here and you never leave, you don't notice. Right, because you take them for granted. Right, until somebody points out to you the like... You realize that that's, like, not a normal thing. Like, Americans are weird. Yeah. They laugh loudly in public. Americans are super friendly. Yeah. It's bizarre, like, how, for the most part, you're willing to talk to a complete stranger in the middle of Ross, who's trying (laughs) to buy a suitcase. Yeah, I had a conversation this morning with the girl at Starbucks about my shoes. I think the biggest piece of that that I think I've taken away with the sense of home after, you know, growing up and feeling at home in Idaho, moving to Iraq, eventually having that feel like home and feeling very at home there. Even when I go back to visit now, it feels very comfortable. Mm -hmm. And then moving back to the U.S., it not feeling like home, but eventually over time also feeling home here. There's a sense that... Eventually, I can feel at home wherever God puts me. Also, none of these places is fully home, nor will any of them be fully home Mm -hmm. until heaven. And being content and actually cheerful and, like, excited about that. Right, and not putting your worth and identity in where you live or who your community is or who your friends are. Right. Is both freeing and terrifying. (laughs) Yes. on Facebook or Instagram or on our website at servantgroup.org. Yeah, and if you have a question that we haven't answered yet, send us an email or Facebook message. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. In an IHOP. International House of Pancakes. Yeah, it's not international. It's not. <laughs> <laughs>